and welcome to another episode of the Rage Podcast. I'm your host, Micaela Parker. On today's episode, we will be discussing the ongoing revolution happening in Iran, storytelling, and international solidarity with Pupe Misangi, assistant professor here at the University of Denver and author of Trans Relating House One. And later in the episode, we will be hearing from Berfin Marx, a freelance journalist and student at the University of Denver. This episode is very special, and I'm so honored to have sat down and talked and also learned from such incredible scholars. So without further ado, let's get into this great episode. I'm Pupe Misagi. I'm an assistant professor at the Department of English, Literary Arts and Studies. I did my PhD actually at DU many years ago, and I just came back as an assistant professor, other than doing creative writing and especially experimental writing. I also do translations between Persian and English, both into and out of English, and I also work as an editor from time to time. My first book, Translating House One, came out in 2020, right before the COVID pandemic shut down everything. And I have a book coming up next year. I'm so glad that you actually talked about Translating House One because that's actually one of my next questions for you. In an article by Ali Geist, she states that you seek to reclaim stories from your culture to question where those stories come from and how you remember your culture. So what is the importance of storytelling to you? There's a scene in the book where our main character, the narrator, goes to a cafe, and then the server is hesitant to let her in. He says, like, there's another cafe around the corner, which is like more, which is proper for women. Maybe you don't want to be here, but then she insists to be in that space. So the scene is like a fictionalized account of one of my own experiences where I had gone like with a friend to this kind of like rough neighborhood. And then there was this cafe and I felt so out of place in that cafe. So then it became fictionalized in my book. And only like a few weeks ago in the recent movement, one of the inspiring things, but also heartbreaking things that happened was like two young women who actually went to this cafe tea house in one of the rough neighborhoods which was mostly like a male space and they had their breakfast without their hijab and one of the girls actually shared the picture on her social media and she was arrested the next day so this relationship between reality and storytelling is very interesting in the sense of like something similar to this happened to me and then it became fictionalized and then like many years later another version of it happens and causes like another round of protests and like social reactions so this just like duality of the relationship the mutual conversation that exists is important to me one of the main premises of the book is documentation of like the lives that were lost during the 2009 protests and in the aftermath of that. And we see that the regime is using like very similar techniques right now, updating themselves as well. But it is a fight for human rights. It is like similar fight for narratives, right? And also even like, it's not just like the living bodies that are, 
a point of tension, but even the corpses of the protesters, right? So there's like a lot that we see like as a continuation, unfortunately. And then the other part that I can comment on is I never do like pure fiction. I, for me, it's always a combination of fiction, nonfiction, documentation, research and scholarly work. And not in the sense of a lot of fiction workers do that, but then they translate everything into their fiction. But for me, it's like even what is on the page is a hybrid creature of both fiction and nonfiction. And in that sense, storytelling is not just happening in the realm of like traditional storytelling. It's also like contextualized with scholarly thinking, with theory, different branches of science and disciplines. In this format, for example, like in Translating House One, I bring in a lot of questions to my readers. And two summers ago, when the Black Lives Matter protests started, right? I had to do a reading and what I do for my readings is I usually decide on what to read depending on what, what is going on at the moment. And I just read pages and pages of my questions without reading like the fictional layer of the book or the narrative that was set in Iran. And these questions applied to whatever was happening here in the US as well. Like the question of documentation, the question of protest, the question of human rights, witnessing people versus like sources of power. So I'm also interested in how this is a similar fight in like all different countries. Their specifics are different, but the larger story is similar. I love that you connected that, especially at the end, because there's one scene in the book that you specifically note where at the college campus, the students were not letting the military get onto the campus or fighting against them. And there were plainclothes military and police people. And then you describe people are throwing rocks. They're throwing rocks. Mm -hmm. It's just like chaos, but it also is eerily familiar when I thought of the protests that were happening within the Black Lives Matter movement, even Standing Rock, for example. And like you said, the same tactics have continuously been used not only domestically in the U.S., but internationally. And I think we don't talk enough about that, especially when it comes to these oppressive regimes that do pop up all over the world and what we can do to continue to stand with each other against these forces of indignity, for example. And I think that you do a great job of illustrating that. And one thing that you said so beautifully as well is that life imitating art, like the truths are the same and can exist in the same space, but realities are just different. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was a really beautiful note in what you said as well. So thank you for all of that. So another point, our protagonist, one of the main searches that she's going on is the statues. And I love that throughout the story, the statues color into the corpses. And I love that her search changes as the story progresses. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it's even more beautiful. So much of your story is connected in that story because mm -hmm. reading it, I was like, wow, so powerful. It was just something that was really beautiful. 
the statues, again, like the similarity of like conversations that we saw here in the US, right, about like, what does it mean to memorialize, right? Or like, who are we memorializing, right? So translating House One also like brings in a scholarship about public art, right? Who do we want to make a symbol? What do these symbols mean? What's the power struggles and power dynamics in creation or like sustenance of like public art? I think that's a great way of encapsulating that as well, too, because we're seeing a rampant insurge across the globe of people wanting to tear down statues of whether it's monarchs or oppressive symbols or Mm -hmm. whatever it may be. I think that that's the one thing that always like humbles me and recenters me and everything that none of my experiences are my own. Like everyone has felt what I'm feeling in some capacity, even if it's in a different form. Like everyone feels grief, everyone feels sadness, everyone feels anger, everyone feels rage. And it always just reminds me, like our first episodes of the series, one of my favorite quotes I tell everybody is from Maya Angelou, and it's, I am human, therefore nothing human can be alien to me. And I just love that quote so much because it reminds me that as much as I want everything to be about me and my pain, that everyone else's pains are intersectionally connected with my pain as well. And so what does that mean? And what does that mean for me, especially when it comes to advocacy and policymaking and all the things that I love and I'm trying to do in my future career endeavors? So I really love that. But to move on a little bit, a driving question in your book is, like you were saying, who has the right to tell the stories of the dead? And so how has storytelling allowed you to not only honor your culture and those who have passed before you, but also expand dialogues around social unrest and injustice in places like Iran? Mm-hmm. Well, part of it is like honoring my own culture, but as we talked, right, it's also like thinking about like the, the global intersections of what is happening, right, in Iran. Like thinking about like who has the right to tell the stories of the dead, this is again something that I bring up in the book and make it part of the conversation on the page. I had a lot of hesitation like when writing this book in English because I was feeling like, what does it mean to bring this story to an audience who is completely foreign to it, right? Even for those who have an intellectual knowledge of it, it's not necessarily a corporal experience, right? So that was one of the reasons like the scholarly work in the book became so important for me to even like ask my readers, like who has the right to tell the stories? What does it mean to tell the stories in any particular way? What does it mean to tell it in English instead of, for example, my first language, which is Persian? Tell it in and publish it in a country whose relationship with Iran has been like so like up and down and complicated over the past few decades, right? And I think those are as important as the stories that I'm telling, like these questions to make sure that we are not just seeing like the social unrest and injustice that is happening or has happened in like a void, but rather like thinking about everything that connects to it from like the brutal killings to like the role of art to the role of language to the role of like scholarly work that exists about this and intersections of like this political historical moment or any historical moment with previous moments either in the same country or in other countries right so I'm very much interested in like seeing connections 
kind of like looking into the like border spaces, right? Rather than just seeing everything for itself. And I guess like my attempt of like expanding dialogues has been like doing this hybrid work. So for like giving you another example, my forthcoming book is dealing with torture and I'm looking at like the global history of torture, the similarities, the interconnections between like what different countries practice, right? So again, it's not just about like seeing brutality by like government agents in like Iran, but seeing it as part of a larger conversation. I'm noticing in my work too that nothing's about just us. <laughs> it's always about everyone else. And you bring up another point as well, the idea of agency and storytelling and the intersects of even our identities and what gives people the right to give us agency or put that privilege onto us to be a storyteller as well. And who has the power to take that away from us? And so I wanted to ask what we're currently seeing happening in Iran, I believe is just not receiving the attention or even dialogues that I think it deserves due to like censorship, the manipulation and the mass internet blackouts that has been happening. So I wanted to ask for the people who live in the West, what can we do to stay aware of the ongoing women-led revolution happening in Iran? I mean, that's a very important question. Like, one thing I want to add is, like, there is censorship in Iran. There is media manipulation. There is internet blackout. But there's also, like, a lot of citizen journalism and, like, a lot of, like, social media material that is being shared and passed around. So information is leaking out. But despite that, Many of us Iranians living in the U.S. and Europe have had like this sense of like, you're right, there is not like enough attention in Western media. There is not the right kind of coverage even, right? I'm glad that you use the word, for example, revolution here. I think like many like media outlets, they are still using the term protest, right? Several of them, they are still saying this is about the hijab, which Initially, it was about the, the right to make choices for one's body, but that's just like a small part of it. It's not by small, I don't mean it's like unimportant, but it was like the initial reason, but that cannot be disconnected from other asks that people have and other demands that they are making, right? So it definitely is like a women-led revolution, but it's not just protest. It's not just about like, we want to have a choice to wear or not wear hijab, right? That's just part of the conversation, right? We can't separate that from the other aspects of this revolution. But coming back to like solidarity and what people here can do, like, I think the the vibe has been shifting a bit like at least in the past week or so which is good to see but then when we speak about like standing in solidarity that needs to translate into action right what kind of action is happening right even like 
supporting, let's say, like on, at the U campus, like supporting your friends on campus, even like your faculty staff who are on campus who are Iranian or are of Iranian heritage, that's important, right? Asking the U administration to offer support to students, right? So that they don't feel isolated on campus. And then if we go outside of campus, the it becomes like a larger conversation, right? The same thing like representatives that we have for the city, right? And then like government officials, right? The US Senate, right? Because still like on many like different platforms, you see, for example, different politicians are saying, we demand that the Iranian regime like be respectful to the rights of the people to protest, right? Or don't show brutality, but then, we are at this point, no one in this movement is asking the regime to do something. We have gone beyond like reform and asking the regime something. It's just about like, we don't want this regime because we already know, like we have gone through like phases of trying reform. We have gone through phases of trying to make change, right? And at this point, everyone knows that as long as they are in power, none of the demands that people are making is gonna be responded to. But still in the West, we see politicians saying that we ask the Iranian government to do this, we ask the Iranian government. And part of it is just like um, politics, right? And what politicians see as doable or not doable, but going back to the people, to us ourselves, like even like educating ourselves is important, right? So not keeping oneself limited to one source of like media and coverage, making sure that we look out and see what exists there, see the different points of view, talk to people, be curious, right? And not just be like, oh, this is something that is happening on the other side of the world and it's it has nothing to do with us. I don't think that is the correct approach at all. Even though this is like a fight specifically for Iranian people, it has a lot of impact on the larger global landscape. So it's important to see this as like a global movement, to see this as part of the larger movement of like women for their rights, to see it as like part of labor movement around the world. Again, like seeing connections is very important. So educating yourselves and also like taking action, right? Even like, there are protests happening every week, show up to protest. Like your bodies are important to be there, right? And not just be like, oh, I feel this and I don't know what to do, right? And it's understandable. Like I think every, we need to acknowledge that every person has their own abilities and they can take steps that feel right to them. But again, like from sharing on social media to being present on the streets, to reaching out to representatives, to even like sharing posters and banners in different public spaces that you go to so that other people can also be joining into that conversation. That's important. Thank you so much for that. And I actually really love how you said that this started about the hijab, but now it's transitioned into something else and more, because I feel like that's 
usually the case with a lot of social movements. And I think that now it's become a movement about the dictator and the people who are in power right now and wanting to get them out. The fact that we're seeing the daughters of women who had to deal with some of the most oppressive regimes or the granddaughters too, I think is very beautiful as well. It reminds me of like, there's this saying right now, like in Iran, in Persian that says like, they buried us not knowing that we are seeds and we would sprout. And also there's a song that uses like this idea of a seed, right? And the fact that we will sprout. So, and if we look at like the past 40 something days, Today, for example, a lot of like protests were happening around the 40th day of the passing and killing of someone or the seventh day of the passing and killing someone. So people were marching to like cemeteries, gathering around like the graves of those who have been killed. And one of the things, again, is like you kill one of us, a thousand of us will come up, right? So that idea of sprouting is very important in this movement. We talked a lot already about international solidarity. And from my understanding with large scale social movements and being a part of them, that international solidarity is super important. And so how can we internationally create spaces of solidarity for the ongoing revolution in Iran within the U.S. while the country also deals with rampant Islamophobia and xenophobia? One of the things that we hear is like, one of the possible reasons of like why there was a lot of hesitance in the beginning of this movement to cover like Iranian women burning their scarves in the streets was like this like Islamophobia that exists in the US or like in the in Europe, there were like some conversations like using that as saying like you see when we say like you should not wear the hijab, right? But then here is the problem. The problem is like this is not about like forcing someone to take off their hijab or forcing them to wear the hijab. It's about the right to have the choice, right? Even as a tourist, when you go to Iran, you have to have your like headscarf and like follow the clothing rules and regulations, right? So, and with Iranian women, it has been like, lack of choice right the body being not one's own right and that goes back to like similarities again with like what like the attacks we have been seeing on the female body in the past few years here in the U.S. right so it's not about like Islamophobia it's about the separation of the state and religion right and also about like having the choice to decide whether one wants to wear the hijab or not. And one of the beautiful things that we are seeing, for example, in the streets in Iran is women wearing their veil hand in hand with women who have taken their hijab off, talking about the choice to their bodies, right? And a lot of like women who are wearing the hijab, who have been activists, they are talking about like, this needs to be a choice, right? Even those of us who wear the hijab don't want people to be forced to do this, right? That is one of the biggest similarities I have seen with the U.S. and what's happening in Iran today as well. That idea of the conversation of choice. Mm -hmm. Even just like the example you gave with the women who wear hijab and the women who don't walking hand in hand and creating conversations with each other. I think that that's really radical and beautiful and the truest form of solidarity.
we aren't talking enough about safety when it comes mm-hmm. to these people and what that means and solidarity in, in regards to just safety in the US for these folks. Mm-hmm. And I think the BU especially is one of those campuses where we especially should make sure our faculty members and staff feel comfortable and feel safe and feel okay having these dialogues that are true to their cultures while also having to deal with systems in place that make them also feel objectively oppressed and unwelcomed. And so I really love that that you said that because we always have other mirrors in the countries to look towards. And I think mm-hmm. Iran is a perfect example. We have more to learn than than to not from each other. And I think with stories like yours, that's what it, it highlights the most for me. I want to thank you for saying that, like, because one of the things, like, again, like in solidarity, what is important is not seeing this from a position of privilege as like we are bystanders and we need to do something in support of these women, but also like thinking about like the creative activism that is happening every day on the ground and learning from the people, right? And it's only in that sense that we can think about like global collaboration and collective movements that go beyond borders, right? And see us all as like one with differences for sure right but this learning is also like one of the things that is important in this moment I agree and I think especially as someone who's such a nerd on protesting revolutions international affairs so when anything happens I'm like ooh, what's going on what tactics are being used even like places like Hong Kong Taiwan like those are places where I'm like, wow, these people are so inventive. With that being said, it's like, why not want to learn what they're doing? Mm-hmm. Why not want to give solidarity? Even if I can only just give that I'm aware of what's happening to them from a Western country, I, I want to do that. My attention is there. And mm-hmm. like, I, I think that that's the most important part of the movement as well, to just pay attention. And I think people forget that nuance of movements, but to pay attention is to give them validity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the beauty of what we're seeing as well, that this revolution is something meaningful to a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons, not only just in Iran, but globally as well. My peer who commended your book to me, who's also a creative writer, she said in a conversation we once had that activism is art. And so I wanted to ask, as a creative writer and a scholar, how has this story allowed you to advocate for the injustices that we're seeing, but also reclaiming stories from your culture. Mm. I totally agree that activism is art, right? This reminds me of Osef Bayot's concept of art as presence. He studies like protests and political movements, especially in the Middle East, in Iran. And he talks about how our everyday actions are also political, especially like if we're thinking about like under a dictatorial system, right? For example, the choice of your clothing, the choice of like your, where are you eating? How are you eating? Or like, how are you even like walking down the street, right? Everything is like an act of opposition, an act of resistance, right? So he calls it the art of presence, right? So your presence, right, is an art and that art is activism, right? But to go back to my creative practice is, well, I guess like there are two parts to this. One is like 
as someone who works more with words or like word as my material, it usually takes more time to like be able to create something of or about or around like historical moments like this. Like it's very hard to go to language in a very in-depth position. For example, right now, what we are seeing, like we are seeing a lot of like creative work from like Iranian artists, either like in the country or in diaspora. A lot of it is visual arts. A lot of it is performance. A lot of it is like song lyrics and songs, right? But it will take a while for like more like longer or like um, literary works to come out, right? It's just like the nature of the work. Um, we see poetry already coming out, right? In my work, like I've seen that I've been using my words like in different spaces, like to write speeches, to give, to give speeches, for example, um, in the past few weeks, or to just have conversations with different people about what's going on. Also just like curating work, seeing what types of collaborations and collective work is possible. I've been working with an amazing group of women here in Denver, where we are just like organizing, doing activism, reaching out to like officials or like thinking about what we can do on the ground, right? So it's just like you you take your creativity into real life right rather than on the page and then probably there would be a conversation when you will take whatever you are experiencing in your life and come back to life and come back to your page i'm also teaching a class on iranian literature this quarter at du which just happened to coincide with these protests because when i decided i wanted to teach this nothing had yet happened but using like the creative space of the class to see again like intersections between literature and what is happening today on the ground that's important so I would say like it's just thinking about how creativity can have many different forms right so if it's not happening on the page it's happening on the ground if it's not happening on the ground it might be happening in conversations it might be happening in the classroom right I really love that I've been able to unlearn that a little bit, even just through our conversations and learning about your book and the conversation I've been able to have in academia as a grad student, because there's such a Eurocentric way of thinking about being creative, whether it's art or whether it's dance, whether it's music, whatever it is. But like you said, it's it doesn't necessarily have to do with any of those. It just has to do with your presence and the intentionality of what you're doing and how it resonates mm -hmm. with others and how others feel about what you're doing as well and the impact of what your actions are. And I think that's beautiful. I think that that's a huge takeaway that I definitely am going to ponder on more. Of. So before you go, I wanted to ask, do you have any ways that our audience can connect with you, whether it's via social media, do you have a website um, and how can they get this book? Please, can you let them know how they can buy, purchase, read this book? <laughs> Um, you can buy Translating House One on my publisher's website. That would be the best way to buy it, Coffee House Press. I do have Twitter. I haven't been active recently, but I have a presence there at Pupemisagi. That's where you can find me. In the winter quarter, I'm teaching an undergrad course on psychoanalysis and literature. 
And in the spring, I'm teaching a PhD level course, translation studies and practice. Hi, my name is Bethan Marx. I am Kurdish and born and raised in Austria, Europe. I'm an activist, journalist, and a political educator on Instagram. In my political work, I like to focus on raising class consciousness, talk about intersectional Marxist feminism, and anti-racism. My main goal is to politicize Gen Z and make politics more accessible for people outside of the academic bubble. You have been reporting on what is happening in Iran since the beginning of the revolution. Could you please tell our listeners what started the revolution and how it has evolved into the movement against the dictator we see today? So on September 13, Gina Mahsamini, a 22-year-old Kurdish woman living in Iran, was arrested for not wearing the hijab properly enough by the Iranian morality police because Iran has strict dress codes for women in public. After spending three days in custody, she collapsed and was transferred to a hospital, and their medical reports showed how she was physically abused and severely beaten. Gina's death mobilized thousands and thousands of Iranian and Kurdish people to protest against dictatorial Iranian regime. We've seen a lot of unarmed civilians attack security forces, women, children, women specifically burning their hijabs, walking down the street without a hijab, which is very revolutionary because the anti-hijab protests looked like people were still wearing hijabs and the hijab was on a stick. So burning the hijab for the first time is very revolutionary. 14k people are behind bars in Iran and jails are put on fire. The government is struggling to contain the protests. But what makes this a revolutionary thing is people from different sectors coming together, all workers, children, students from universities, people from the medical field, and I think that's a revolutionary part of it. When it comes to like international solidarity, it's, it's very unique because I feel like we know globally that Iran has very strict dress codes for women and that it's very misogynistic in general, but I've never seen international solidarity for Iranian and Kurdish women like this ever before. Mm. So like even if you look at Berlin or Vienna or other parts of the world, you can see especially Iranians and Kurds from the diaspora are organizing and connecting very well. So I guess like that's, that's very unique. And what's specifically so important is that the Iranian protests are heavily relied on these type of international solidarity things because mm -hmm. they need that. Iran shut down internet for a reason because mm -hmm. they didn't want the international community to know. So putting pressure from outside of Iran is very important for the civilians right now. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm actually really happy you segue into that because with, like you were saying, the effects of internet blackout and censorship and media manipulation from news outlets within Iran to the global community, I wanted to ask, you have a really large social media presence and it's allowed you to amplify stories that aren't being told or wouldn't be told if it wasn't for platforms like yours. So I wanted to ask, what is the importance of storytelling to you and your work? My goal is to show your experiences as a woman, mm -hmm. as, an, as an immigrant, as a woman of color, is highly political. Because mm. like, we tend to, like when we think about politics, we usually think of old white men in suits. Mm. And we're like, oh no, politics is not for me. It's too complicated. I don't feel like I have a space in politics. So that's, I feel like that's my main goal with that. And 
yeah, just like giving platforms to unique perspectives and experiences that I might not have. For example, whatever what you experienced, I've never experienced that. And I feel like most people who follow me didn't. But I think it's still important to highlight that and to give that a platform. So I guess that's my main goal with that. I really love that. And I love that you're my friend. And I appreciate being... (laughs) I love you. Yeah, I love you. Because I appreciate getting to know you. And I don't know, there's not too many people and places. Or even when I got to DU, did I think there were going to be people or places that I would be able to be like, oh, we can relate on things. Or even though we're so different, I I feel like home with you. So that's like, I'm really, I'm really happy to be your friend. Yes, I love you. I appreciate you. So with that in mind, I wanted to ask, with what is currently happening in Iran, how is social media pages and content creators like yourself revolutionizing how we think about journalism to reclaim stories of the oppressed and marginalized? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think this is a very interesting question because usually the criticism I get is your journalism is not objective. Mm. So people usually connect journalism with being objective. Mm. I might have an unpopular opinion about this because I think as long as humans are behind certain things, like even science, mm. is not 100% objective. Yeah. Like. And I'm, I'm a journalist who has subjective views, <laughs> who has strong subjective views. And I feel like there are a lot of journalists who are on the other side too, on the right side. And I want to be on the left side and I want to amplify those stories and those topics. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. And I also feel like, like when, especially when it comes to social media, mainstream media is trash. Mm. It's absolute trash. I mean, if you look at US media, 90% of US media is controlled by six companies. Right. So how diverse are the things that we are watching, right? Like, as a journalist and as an activist, social media is a great tool to organize. I mean, we've seen it with Black Lives Matter. We've seen it with other protests that happened. Mainstream media would have never covered it the way that social media did or Twitter did, for example. So, yeah. I love that point that you're making about how people don't think it's objective because people are choosing to exclude Iran from a lot of conversations within the West because we don't have an objective view on them. We've been very xenophobic when it comes to Iran, when it comes to issues of human rights in Iran, Mm -hmm. even just the Middle East in general, even though I hate calling that area the Middle East. But countries that have been demonized post 9-11, you will never see, for example, even like MSNBC or CNN talking largely for hours or days about these issues. It's a small segment within an hour block. And it's hard to think about that too, because like we're literally paying for the 24 hour media cycle, but it's not because they want us to know news. It's because they want to get the ad revenue. So it's, it's interesting because I think that like you said, nothing's objective through and through. There's gray areas to everything. Yeah. And I think no matter what you believe in, your bias is going to be involved. But it's like, what does it mean that my bias is for the dignity and the empathy of others globally and you not wanting to talk about that or thinking that there's an issue to that? And I also wanted to ask because we also said that you have a big platform. This also leaves room for there to be real life risk and implications to the work that you do Mm -hmm. and you believe in and the content you create so I wanted to ask how has that been in regards to 
your life and revolving around creating content, but also just like your safety day to day. Yeah, I quickly realized that. So getting threats is a daily thing at this point, like death threats, for example, or just like, I don't know, people just want to like hurt you. Right. So that has been actually a topic in my therapy sessions. Like mm-hmm. I would pay my therapist to talk about these anonymous threats that I would be getting. And it's funny because like 99% of the people who send me threats are men. (laughs) So I guess that's very telling. And 70% are probably white. So there's definitely like a pattern. And those threats will not stay on the internet. I had moments where people recognized me in Vienna, for example. That happens quite a lot, like, also with people who support my work, Mm -hmm. but also with people who don't support it at all. So there were moments where I was, I don't know, like, holding speeches and, like, someone, like, noticing me or I had people who were, like, crazily obsessed and would stalk me, be at every protest that was present, I guess. And I guess, like, some real-life implications are that I'm banned from a specific country right like I can't go back see my family and that sucks Mm. (laughs) so whatever you do on the internet usually doesn't stay on the internet it has real life consequences Mm. and besides all of the death threats and the being banned from a country and not being able to have total freedom it's just like your mental health like Mm. reading all of the news about Iran right now or like in general, talking to people who went through so much, who went through so much shit, for example, and like, I don't want to put myself in a position where I'm like, oh my God, I'm so poor for listening to these stories, but like, listening to those stories and like, doing research on very serious topics like sexual assault or sexism or whatever, it's just, it will affect your mental health at some point. So I guess that's, those are some of the implications and risks of being on social media and doing activism and politics. I remember my information getting doxxed when I was at my previous college up at CSU in Fort Collins and what it was like to have one of the sheriffs of the county go on his social media platform with a picture of our protest and spotlight me and talk badly about me and then go through the comments and look and people are like, we have guns, we have this, better watch out. And so I completely understand, like, it's not just about, oh, yeah, like, the internet's the internet, people are going to do what they're doing, but it's like, what does it mean that we as a country hold these standards of, like, liberty, freedom of expression, freedom of speech, and the repercussions to the people who violent views inflicted towards us in in real life? And there's not a lot of safety. I mean, we can't trust police. I I can't afford bodyguards, so (laughs) I I can't always change my number or relocate. So it definitely, within this work, it makes you vulnerable. Like, and I can only imagine from a global lens, but I just think no one talks enough about the safety that isn't taken into consideration for people who are activists. So for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I especially with the journalistic side of it as well, even internationally, I believe one of the most dangerous jobs is journalism so Mm -hmm. people die every day because of the stories they report and so I always 
I never take for granted the work you do. So thank you again for telling stories. I really thank do you appreciate for your work. And I feel like it's important to see the intersectionality of it. Like mm-hmm. a white feminist will not go through the same things that we do, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Or like, I don't know, not being able to go to a specific country or like all of those things. Mm-hmm. Like, and then like, you just, you just got to see what tools the opponents use. With me, it's a lot of racism, for example, and I think with you, it's gonna be the same thing. Like, yeah. just go back to your country or like whatever other racist things. And I feel like it's important to highlight that not every activist will make the same experiences. There are. I feel like it's also like very heavily romanticized. Oh yeah, being an activist is cool. Suddenly, it's it's a brand almost. Like, I think I don't know which fashion brand it was. It was a fast fashion brand. But they were literally using like activist slogans to promote their mm. to promote their fashion, and I'm like, this is real life shit. Like, yeah. people are in actual danger. It's not something to be romanticized. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate you saying that too because I think there are a lot of people, even celebrities. Oh yeah. People, I was just telling you, like, I I, I don't be on Twitter anymore arguing with <laughs> folks because I just can't do it for my dignity anymore. But one thing that I notice is like when like LeBron James, for example, when he became a billionaire, there were a lot of people, especially in the black community, people I know that were like really excited, really happy. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as a good billionaire. So I was just like, what? I yeah. And I think that there's this narrative that's pushed that just because he has a school in Akron, Ohio, that he does these things that are phenomenal for the development of the community. But it's like, it's not impacting the, our community. It's impacting his one little area of acne Mm -hmm. and it's that's exactly what white billionaires have been doing with their wealth hoarding it i mean there's so many people i think who applaud fish for swimming and aren't critical enough of people for what they do and how they utilize their funds and it's just something i always grapple with because i'll probably never be super rich but even if I have wealth, I'll always give it back to somebody mm-hmm. else. I believe in distributing anything I have as far as when it comes to my community and people I love. So it's like nothing would ever just be mine. I would want to build wealth for everyone around me. And so I just think that people aren't critical enough of the people around them. And I just really appreciate your work. But going on, moving <laughs> on. How can you create spaces for safety here on campus? This is a very good question. <laughs> I feel like DU lacks a little bit of like intersectional understanding of certain things mm-hmm. and I wish DU would have more international solidarity because like I know when the Ukrainian war happened DU published a statement in mm-hmm. one or two weeks but when the thing with Iran was going on there's still nothing yeah. and there's a lot of Iranian students, Kurdish students here I think I'm the only one, but... <laughs> and those people need more resources. Because, like, I've met a couple of Iranian people here who have families in Iran right now. And mm-hmm. you can't just function normally. You can't just, like, attend class normally when you know my family might die mm-hmm. every day. So do you need to do more of that, I feel like? Yeah. I feel like that's a great point, too, because not making a statement is a statement. Oh, Yeah not doing anything is making a choice and it's a decision so them like you said why why do it with one and not another and expect communities to feel empowered or Mm -hmm. like they can be supported on our campus so yeah I definitely believe 
we need to make that conversation happen more here. So yeah, for sure. I love that you brought that up. And I wanted to ask you, as an international student and someone who has been advocating for human rights around the globe, what does international solidarity look like and mean to you? I think international solidarity can highlight how a lot of marginalized, oppressed, and colonized groups have the same chains on their bodies, which mm-hmm. is exploitation by the bourgeoisie, for example, exploitation by white supremacy, by the global north. And I think international solidarity can help realize our similarities. Mm-hmm. I mean, we talked about this with like BLM and Iran, right? Yeah. There are a lot of similarities. And I have one quote <laughs> by Samora Machel. Do you know him? Yeah, yeah, I'm familiar. Yeah, great guy. He was the leader of the Mozambique independence protests, and he was an African Marxist revolutionary, and he said, international solidarity is not an act of charity. It is an act of unity between allies fighting on different terrains towards the same objective. So I think that is a good (laughs) summary of what international solidarity can mean, just like realizing that we all are oppressed by the same exploitative group, mm-hmm. which is the ruling class and the bourgeoisie, if you ask me personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I would, I would say that. I did want to give you a little bit of time to give our audience or our listeners any of your social medias, how to plug information about you to them, any websites you want to let them know about, or just how to stay in contact virtually with you and get to know you more. So I guess I'm only on Instagram, but that's berfin.marks. And yeah, that's about it. Like my TikTok is boring, <laughs> but my TikTok is another Marxist if you want to follow. <laughs> but that's mostly it. Yeah, Instagram. Instagram is the main platform. Well, thank you so much, honey. Thank, thank you for you. making time for me always. Like I said, thanks for being my friend. I appreciate you so much. Thank you. As always, we'll be ending our episode with an excerpt from a book. This week, we are honored to have Pupe herself read from her book, Transrelating House One. In the aftermath of Iran's 2009 election, a woman undertakes a search for statues disappearing from Tehran's public spaces. A chance meeting alters her trajectory, and the spaces between fiction and reality narrows. As she circles the city's points of connection, tea houses, buses, galleries, hookah bars, her many questions are distilled into one. How do we translate loss into language? Melding several worlds, perspectives, and narrative styles, Translating House One translates the various realities of Tehran and its inhabitants into the realm of art helping us remember them anew. This is from page 168 of Translating House One. And I'm going to start in the middle of the page with a quote from Daniel Burzotsky, who is a writer and translator based in Chicago. And he translates from Spanish. He is a translator of Chilean literature, Chilean poet, Raul Zurita. And he also writes a lot about like bodies, governments, 
power and injustices. So I'm just going to read a section from the book, starting with his quote. Quote, I do not know how to talk about my country without talking about all the bodies it has destroyed. I do not know how to talk about my city without talking about all the bodies it keeps underground. I do not know how to talk about ghosts without talking about myself. So that's the end of the quote. What purpose can these narratives fulfill when at some point they'll become another object of intellectual inquiry on a library shelf, another object that's lost its emotional bearings? What good is yet another remnant of a time of a people of a hope for change or a struggle against hopelessness? How do disparate attempts at storytelling become our collective narratives, our collective memories? How can a narrative be collective when each of us reads and remembers it through our individual bodies and minds and emotions, through our individual histories? How can a narrative be collective when we are constantly shedding cells and new ones are appearing in their place? What to do to move beyond judgment, beyond criticism, to move beyond separations and towards shared spaces? How do collective narratives become collective actions? How much time does it take? Is a compilation of stories that leads to noise better or worse than silence? Doesn't noise create the illusion of knowledge, sympathy, empathy? of narratives heard, existences registered, lessons learned. Why this need for words? Why not silence? Is silence ignorance? Is silence rejection? Is silence stagnation? Doesn't silence hint at the void, at the sacred, at the unspeakable? Can't silence be sacred? How to bear the void, how to bear loss on one's skin, on one's hair, on one's lashes, on one's nails, on one's nerves, on one's cells, in one's heart, on one's tongue. How to translate loss into language, how to survive loss. What is at the center of loss, at the center of life after loss? How much time needs to pass before mourning can become healing, can become living? How can we walk the distance that separates you and me, you and us, who became one and the other because a shared experience exploded into an abyss of unshared history, memory, story? How can we walk the distance and arrive on the other side, alive and generous, capable of light and love, reaching in and reaching out with a touch and a tone that can make joy and be joy? Are we, as we walk, leaving the dead behind? Are we leaving ourselves behind? What about guilt? What about shame? Mine and yours, ours and yours, how to bear memory, how to bear witness. for listening to another episode of the rage podcast the rage podcast is the product of the interdisciplinary research institute for the study of inequality or irise to learn more about what we do please visit our website at irise.du.edu to ensure that we bring you quality content 
please be sure to subscribe, follow, like, or share on the platform you are listening to us on. For rage opportunities and updates, please follow our social media pages. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Rage Podcast, all one word. Thank you again for listening to another episode of The Rage. And remember, every day you are breathing, you are winning. Stay safe and you are loved.